All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, let's pray together. Father, as we wrap up our discussion of Kings and Chronicles as we end this week, um, today and tomorrow, we, we pray that you would help us to review this content, to get a better grasp of it, and um, we pray that you would make it sweet to us as well. We want to be people who not only hear your word, but love it as well. And so uh, let us say with the psalmist that your word is sweeter than honey and that it's more valuable to us than much gold, even fine gold. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So review from yesterday. We already did part of this. We're talking about the differences between Kings and Chronicles. And uh, are the differences between these books, uh, would you say that they're big or small? Big, huge, ginormous. Yeah, they're pretty big. Uh, They're pretty noticeable. Um, And uh, we started to explain why that's the case, all right? They're written to two different audiences. Who's King's written to? Uh, Yeah, the exiles of Judah in Babylon. And uh, who is Chronicles written to? The exiles the of oh, yeah, the, the generation of uh, Jews who have come back during the Restoration. Um, so it's written to Judah in Restoration, back in the Promised Land. Uh, they've returned from exile. And we talked yesterday about how these two different audiences have different questions that they're asking, and they're facing different problems. So I'm not going to put all of that on the board again, but but let's kind of jot it out or, or kind of list it off. What are some of the questions that the people in exile are probably asking? Go for it. Um, why am I here? Yeah, why am I here? And, and specifically, if I'm a righteous person, why, why am I in exile? Right? Why is God punishing me? I cared about the law. I've only worshipped you know the one true God. Why am I here? And how does Kings help? answered that question uh, by saying all the wrong that everyone has done and then you're guilty by association okay yeah it, it's going to list off uh, you know the history of the monarchy ever since we had kings here are the things that have gone wrong and look at how patient God has been so it's not that God has just flown off the handle at us and lost his temper all of a sudden and that's why you're here you're only here after God's been very, very patient and merciful and forgiving. And another thing that we see in Kings is a principle that our generations always in Kings punished for their own sin. Sometimes they feel the consequences of what? People around them or the people before them. What's an example of somebody in Kings who really feels the consequences of a person who came before him? Uh, Josiah. Righteous Josiah has a wicked grandpa named Manasseh. And Josiah, during his reign in Kings, is feeling the weight of what Manasseh did. Right? And we said, you know, even for us, we know that this principle is true. You know, if we have, if we grow up in a household and, 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 and our parents don't do what they ought, it affects us as the children. Sometimes we bear the burden. Sometimes we bear the consequences. So one of the things that Kings does is it helps the people in exile recognize maybe you are a sinner and that's, you know, God is actually kind of punishing you. But if you're one of these righteous people in Babylon who you're asking the question, I've obeyed God's law, I've paid attention to it, not perfectly, but I've, my heart's been right before him, like David, like Josiah. 
uh, you know, I've only worshipped the one true God. Why am I here? The king steps in and says, well, it may not be that God is punishing you for your sin, but you might be feeling the consequences of the sins of those who have gone before you. It may not be that God is, is really getting you back for what you've done, but you might be bearing the burden, bearing the consequences of, of the wrongs others have committed. And that's something that happens to us as well. Kings helps us understand that sometimes whenever we are going through life and something bad happens, it's not necessarily our fault. That's a message of Kings. Is that true? You know, something bad happens to me. Should my first thought be God's getting me back? Is that necessarily true? Sometimes does God discipline us whenever we do wrong? He does. But just because I'm going through life and something bad happens, should I think to myself, oh, God's mad at me and he's getting me back. Sometimes we just live in a fallen, sinful world. And the consequences of the fall and the consequences of sin are real to us and we feel it. And Kings helps us understand that. What are other questions that uh, these exiles are maybe asking and dealing with? Did mm-hmm. my God lose? Yeah, did my God lose? I see the Babylonian God, his temple right there. And we have this idea all the way throughout the Old Testament scriptures that whenever God defeats a nation before Israel, it's that God is defeating their gods. And now Babylon has defeated us. Does that mean that Marduk, the great god of Babylon, has defeated our god? And how does Kings answer that question? Has God lost? No. No. Uh, In fact, according to Kings, who sends Israel and Judah into exile? God God does. Who is the one who sends Babylon? God. God. So... Uh, No, God is not lost. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the God who is in control of all the nations. You think about like the story of Elijah and Elisha, how the two of them, prophets of the one true God, go to Syria and they start anointing people king in Syria. And then God uh, makes his plan in Syria come to fruition. And, And, you know, it's not that God is just in control of what happens in Israel and Judah in these books. He's in control of all the kings and all the kingdoms of the world. So it's not that God's lost. It's that his people sinned against him and Babylon. Uh, there's a proverb that says the heart of a king is like water in God's hand. You ever uh, cupped your hand like this and put water in it? Mm-hmm. And you can move the water however you want, right? And the proverb says that that is what the heart of a king is like in God's hand. God can move it as he pleases. And we see that in the books of kings. Uh, God is in control of all the kings and kingdoms of the earth. What's another problem that, that the exiles are maybe dealing with? What's the, what's the last thing we said yesterday? Should, uh, I, should, should I become a yeah, a temptation to kind of become Babylonian. I, I, I could fit in better, stop eating according to the law, you know, eat like a Babylonian, uh, act like a Babylonian, worship like a Babylonian. Uh, not going to observe the Sabbath or my holy days. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it the Babylonian way. And how does Kings urge against that? Like, like really much. How? Oh. Examples. Uh, you're probably going to die again. Like you're probably gonna die. Are there are there examples in kings oh. of people who associate themselves tightly with the nations? Yeah. Oh, like like the cross marrying between like the different like cultures and stuff. Like, like Ahab and Jezebel, and right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ahab and Jezebel, and Ahab starts worshiping Bel and starts looking very Canaanite-ish. And what happens to him? What does God do? Kills him. 
Yeah, judgment falls. Um, was it Saul who was looking a lot like the Pharaoh? Not Saul, Saul. Uh, Solomon, right? Solomon starts looking very Egyptian. He starts looking like the nations around him. Uh, starts using Pharaoh language to talk about him, enslaving the peoples and being harsh with them. And um, yeah, over and over again in Kings, we get this idea that whenever the nation starts associating itself with pagan religion or with pagan customs, God's judgment is not far away. And so if you're in exile in Babylon and you start associating yourself with Babylonian stuff, the message of Kings is this will end in judgment for you. It's a warning against doing that. So, um, but one of the big things that we see in Kings is this really uh, prevalent idea of God's patience that the really big judgment uh, didn't come immediately. The exile didn't come really even quickly. It came slowly. God was slow to anger. And so if you're in exile and you're angry at God for this, then you can read Kings and you can realize that the scandal of Judah's history is not that the exile happened. The scandal of Judah's history is that God was so merciful and patient in postponing the exile. So this is a, the message of Kings trying to meet the needs of this audience. Chronicles, uh, written to the Restoration Generation, what are they dealing with? What are the issues that they're facing? Joylyn? Need to be encouraged in the face of Yeah, whenever they come back to the land, there's a lot of people there who don't want them there. There's a lot of people there that don't want them to build the temple or Jerusalem. And... There's this group that um, we'll see in Ezra and Nehemiah is called the peoples of the land. They're going to oppose them at every turn. So the, um, this restoration generation is tempted by fear. They need to be encouraged. And they, what do they need to be encouraged to do? Uh, to restore the nation, to build the temple, to build Jerusalem. Um, they, they need to rebuild, even though they're scared and even though that's going to be hard. <laughs> uh, so one of the things that we see in Chronicles that meets this need, um, this is a little bit of a strange thing, but I want you to think about it with me. Um, you guys finished last night reading the story of David in Chronicles, right? No. What was missing? All of his sin. Yeah. You read David in Chronicles and you know what David looks like? Um, really well. Better than really well. Borderline perfect. Uh, Does Samuel and Kings present him as borderline perfect? No. No. Uh, But Chronicles does. In Chronicles, all of the bad parts of David's reign are omitted. They're left out. And then you move on to Solomon in the book of Chronicles. And you guys, I don't think, have read about Solomon in Chronicles yet. But it's going to be basically the same thing. 
The bad things that Solomon does are really kind of glossed over in Chronicles. Sometimes they're mentioned, but it's not, you know, like Kings, by the end of Kings, it's laying like all the blame at Solomon's feet. Solomon is the reason that the kingdom was split. Solomon did all of these really bad things and started looking like Pharaoh. In Chronicles, it's a much more positive portrayal of Solomon as well. David looks borderline perfect and Solomon's not far behind. Now, uh, oh, and by the way, um, there, you, you even get statements like this. Talking about David's army, it said that David's army was like the army of the Lord of hosts. So, a lot. so um, God has an army of what? What are God's hosts? Angels. angels. All right. God is at the head of an army of angels. And it says that David's army was like the army of the Lord of hosts. So his army is being compared to the angels, which means that David is being compared to God. God. That's a pretty big statement, isn't it? And then you get statements like this. Solomon made Jerusalem prosper to the point that its streets were filled with gold. That's a statement you'll read tonight in Chronicles. What does that sound like? Sounds like heaven, streets of gold. And that's what Solomon makes Jerusalem like. Um, Doesn't mean that literally it was paved with gold. It means that um, you guys know, probably um, a lot of cultures have marketplaces that are outdoors, like in the streets. You've seen this in movies before or something. Um, Jerusalem would have had something like this. And in the marketplace, whenever you go to pick up groceries, gold is so abundant in Jerusalem during Solomon's reign, according to Chronicles, that whenever you go to the marketplace, you start giving gold for your blueberries. Whoa. There's so much of it. You guys know, like, the more money there is in a place, the less value each piece of money has. Yeah. So there is so much gold that that's what you're using with your, for your transactions for grocery food. Imagine. The normal person can buy things in gold during Solomon's reign. So the, the book of Chronicles like, takes this really kind of over-the-top view of David and Solomon's reign. It omits most of the bad stuff, and it, it makes the good stuff look really, really good. And we would ask the question, why? And the answer to that has to do with this problem right here. These people have come back to the land. And uh, what does, what do the cities they used to live in look like whenever they come back to the land? Bad. What did God say he was going to do to the land? He, he compared it to a dish, and what was he going to do? Wipe it clean. Right? There's not been any people here. The cities have been destroyed. They've been uninhabited. They've probably grown up. Uh, you know, it's been several decades, so, uh, you know, the you, you've seen houses before that have been abandoned and there's, like, stuff growing in them or on them or something, you know. Like, there's, uh, you know, these, pe- these places have been abandoned. Do they look glorious? No. No. And it's going to be a lot of work to restore them. And one of the things that Chronicles does is it holds the days of David and Solomon up as kind of this glorious golden age of Judah's history. Remember what it used to be like in all of its glory, in all of its splendor. And you have the opportunity to bring it back like it was. So be encouraged and don't fear.
and rebuild. It's supposed to be a motivating thing. It's kind of like what we do sometimes, right? Um, our founding fathers in the United States. Um, perfect people? No. Not even close. Not even close. All right? Growing up, though, you heard stories about George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Hamilton and, and, and all of these guys. And all of the stories you heard growing up made them out to be what? Good. Good. Heroic people. All right. Why? Okay, you might answer and say, well, it was propaganda. No, because it's not appropriate for children to say all the bad stuff they did. For ch- what do children need? Encouragement. encouragement. They need encouragement, and they need heroes that they can look up to. All right? They, they need ideals. Not ideas, but ideals. They need to be able to look at the history and have something that they're striving for. These are the ideas. These are the grand pictures of what America would be like that these founders had. And these founders were not perfect men, and they didn't put these things into action perfectly, and and they made mistakes and all of this. But this is the grand idea that they had. These are the good steps that they took to try to bring that to fruition and make it real. And we give that to children. We inspire the imagination. We encourage them to follow after the footsteps of, of these heroic people, all right? I think Chronicles is doing something similar. Or you think about, we just had Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Yeah. All right, you want to know some things about Martin Luther King Jr.? Yeah. Serial adulterer. Did you know that? that? Cheated on his wife a lot, all right? Um, you know that he was a Baptist pastor, right? Did you know that he denied that Jesus was born of a virgin and was resurrected of the dead and was fully God? He didn't believe any of those things. He was very open about it. All right? So, so Martin Luther King Jr., uh, we would look at him and, and say, you know, he had some moral failings. Uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a religious thinker, he had some big issues right there. But we remember Martin Luther King Jr. for the good that he did. Did he do good? Yes. He did, right? The I had a, have a dream speech, right? He, he pushed for civil rights. He pushed for nonviolence. He, he pushed for reform in a way that, that is very inspirational. Whenever kids are growing up, right, do they need to know about all of these horrible things with Martin Luther King Jr.? We don't want to be naive. We want to know that they're there. But even you all, the reason that we took a day off and we celebrate uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Day is to remember the good that he did and the vision that he had and how that vision still needs work. It still needs to be brought to reality and fruition. And so Chronicles is doing something similarly. Chronicles is written before or after Kings? After. After. Does Chronicles know the history of of David's sin? Does Chronicles know that the people of Judah know those stories about David? So is it trying to deceive? Is it trying to lie? No. 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 What it's trying to do, though, is for these people that need encouragement to get this building project going, it's trying to remind them of the real historical highlights of David and Solomon's reign. This glorious era when so much good did happen. Bad stuff did too, but so much good stuff did happen. We want to paint a picture of that to encourage these people to take heart and strengthen their hands and build and to try to get back to, to, to what Jerusalem was like. So that's, I think, why there's those omissions in, in Chronicles. 
Um, does that make sense? You guys understand where, where we're going with that? Yeah. Another thing that might be happening there is, um, originally, did you know that the Old Testament was not structured the way that it is now? Like, like book order of the Old Testament used to be different than how we order it now. And guess what the very last book of the Old Testament used to be? Chronicles. Chronicles. And I think that part of what we see in Chronicles might be God kind of retelling the story of his people through the eyes of grace. David really was a a man after God's own heart. And what is true about God's relationship with David? All right. Whenever David appears before God uh, in glory, is God going to judge David because of all of his sins? What has God done to David? He's forgiven him, all right? He's cast his sins away. As far as the east is from the west, so far are our sins removed from us, according to Psalm 103. And so part of what might be happening in Chronicles is here we are at the end of the Old Testament, a story of how Israel has been unfaithful to the Lord. But as God is looking back on the history, maybe Chronicles gives us a picture of God's gracious memory towards his people. Maybe it gives a picture of how he's forgiven our sins and has made us clean, and, and how he now tells our story uh, in, <coughs> in light of forgiveness. Um, whenever God tells David's story in glory, he doesn't talk about Bathsheba. He doesn't talk about Absalom and Amnon and Tamar. Whenever he tells David's story in glory, he tells it through the lens of grace and forgiveness, and the same is true for us if we have come to know the Lord. Yeah. Do you think we could see David in heaven? I think we'll see, yeah, I mean, I think we'll interact with each other. Will we, like, would we still have, like, memory of this earth? Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Um, so the other thing that we see in Chronicles is, um, what was the other thing I told you, another issue from yesterday? Yeah, we're back in the land, and we're maybe tempted with small sins. Um, and, uh, you know, what might be driving that mentality? Yeah, God won't judge us. Look how long it took him to send us into exile the first time around. If we commit some small sins, I mean, God doesn't really care. Look at how patient he was in Kings. So we don't really need to worry about, you know, the women of the land are kind of cute. So if we marry some of them, God won't be too mad, will he? And, you know, we're still trying to get all the money and, and economy and stuff going here in Jerusalem. So if we work on the Sabbath and buy, sell, and trade on the Sabbath, God's not really going to get too bent out of shape about that really, is he? I mean... Look at how long it takes him to get mad. So if we just sin in some small ways, he overlooks it. Yeah, is that is that a good way to think? Not really. Don't presume on, on God's patience. He is patient, but his patience is meant to lead you to repent, to holiness. And just because God's being patient today... I mean, he'll be tomorrow. Good, yeah. And just because he was patient with these generations for so long doesn't mean that he's obligated to wait another 400 years to deal with your sins. So one of the things that we get in Chronicles is a theology of what we call immediate retribution. Um, what this means is that in Chronicles, we see that people get paid back, either good or bad, pretty immediately for what they do. 
Kings is focused on the really big punishment that eventually comes, the exile. Chronicles is going to focus more, it, it has stuff to say about the exile, but it's going to focus more on kind of the, the smaller judgments that sometimes God brought on people, or the smaller blessings he sometimes brought on people, depending on what they did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, the best example of this, there's a lot of examples we could use to kind of go through this uh, theology of immediate retribution. There's a lot of different examples from Chronicles we could bring up. But I want us to stick with two that we looked at with Kings. Uh, in Kings, we spent some time earlier this week and talked about Manasseh and Josiah. And according to Kings, what is Manasseh? Yeah, Manasseh, according to uh, Kings, is the worst king ever. His sins were so bad that the exile was going to happen no matter what. Josiah was the best king ever, but even he couldn't prevent the exile because Manasseh's sins were so bad. And Josiah feels the weight of Manasseh's sins. He's the one that bears the consequences. Well, Chronicles is going to tell this same story. It's going to fill in some historical gaps. Remember, this is all to make the point that sometimes sons suffer for fathers' faults. That's the point that Kings really wants to to drive at. Uh, Chronicles wants to make a very different point and wants to say um, uh, immediate retribution. God pays you back for what you do, and sometimes that happens very, very quickly. So be very holy, and God will bless you. Be very wicked, God will judge you. Um, so here's the story of Manasseh from Chronicles. I'm going to read from Second Chronicles chapter 33. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For Manasseh rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the bells and made Ashtaroth and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Uh, In the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set up in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they'll be careful to do all that I've commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given them through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So summarize what I just read. What does Chronicles start off telling you about Manasseh? Manasseh's a failure. Yeah, worst king ever. All of that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. 
All of that was almost word for word from the book of Kings. Here's where it gets different. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. So, immediate retribution. We didn't learn about this in Kings. Manasseh sinned, and God is punishing him. Who does he send to Manasseh? Assyria. 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 They captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So Manasseh has his own personal exile. Isn't it? Like, that's when I got hooked by the lips and they dragged him. Sweet. Did they like drag like I probably what I'm what I've seen is that the hook either was through the nose or in the mouth. It seems to me like it's probably in the mouth, given Assyrian religion. And um, they have him like in, in chains of bronze, and they're walking with him, and probably have it like this. And as he's walking, they're pulling. So now, why are they going to Babylon if they're Assyrians? Um, I really don't know. Maybe Assyria is in control of Babylon for a short period, and then Babylon takes them over. That's always stuck out to me as kind of odd, and I really don't know the answer. But what we do see is Manasseh sins, and God sends an immediate punishment. You're in exile. Um, The Assyrians carry you away. Verse 12, though, says, And when Manasseh was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to God, and God was moved by his prayer and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh gets saved. He humbles himself, he prays, he repents, and immediately God forgives him and restores him in Jerusalem. He sins, immediate consequence, immediate punishment. He repents, immediate blessing. Yeah. Maybe they're showing him how, like, um, that Judah is going to feel when they're exiled in Babylon by taking Manasseh there. Feel. Yeah, it's foreshadowing Judah's exile, probably. Um, what I want to point out is that this is something that kind of sticks for Manasseh, though. Afterward, it says in verse 14, Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of the Gihon River in the valley, and for the entrance into the fish gate, and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. And he also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. So he strengthens the wall of Jerusalem. He strengthens their military strength. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, he threw outside the city. So all the altars that he built, all the idols that he built, he destroys them all. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Good king. Destroys all the idols, leads a revival of true religion. Used to be the most wicked and becomes one of the best. So he's, again, immediate retribution. It wants you to know Manasseh's sin and God's punishment was pretty immediate. Manasseh repented and God's blessing was pretty immediate. So you all who have just been brought back to the land don't think that God doesn't care about your small sins. He might not send you immediately into exile, but punishment will come. Discipline will come. But if you're holy, if you obey, 
The Lord's going to protect you. He's going to strengthen you. He's going to be with you as you rebuild. So be encouraged by the story of Manasseh. That would be the point of, of, of the difference in this story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You guys understand how Manasseh is being used in these two books? So historically, which one's true? They're complimentary, aren't they? Kings tells you about all of his sins. Does Chronicles disagree that he was a really massive sinner? No, it tells you all the same stuff. It just adds on, by the way, he repented. Kings leaves that out. The reason Kings leaves that out is because Kings is trying to make a different point. It's really true that Manasseh was so bad that God said the exile really is going to come. And there's no preventing it. And Josiah really does feel the, the, the weight of that. So Kings isn't, you know, lying to you. Kings is just presenting a different point. So the story is presented differently. Um, Josiah, according to Kings, Josiah is what king? The best. The best. All right. Uh, Bad things happened to Josiah because of how wicked Manasseh was. Um. Here's what we read about him in 2 Chronicles 35, though. This is verse 20. After all this, talking about all of Josiah's rebuilding efforts for the temple, all of his reforms, keeping the Passover. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple... Nico, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But Nico sent envoys, messengers, to Josiah, saying, What have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I'm not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I'm at war. And God has commanded me to hurry. See, supposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. By the way, uh, only king we've read about who disguises himself in battle. So who is the text comparing Josiah to? Good or bad? Why did Josiah want to fight with him? I think he's he's a young king still. And young people have sometimes I'm I'm still a young person. Sometimes we're rash. I think that I think that this is a little bit of arrogance. I think that it's just rashness. And it, it says in the text he didn't listen to the words of Nico, which were from the mouth of God. But he came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, I'm badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And Josiah died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Well, whenever it says that Nico strikes him down, that can also mean like the soldiers of Nico, right? Like, um, so he went to fight against Nico, not with him. So, so like, you remember Saul leads an army against the Philistines, and then they say Saul's killed his thousands. Well, it wasn't that Saul as an individual literally struck down a thousand men, right? It wasn't that Saul's killed his hundreds, but they just killed his thousands. 
uh, some, I think it was Saul killed his thousands and David's killed his ten thousands, right? Should, should we understand that as Saul went out in his battle and he had someone who was walking around with a notebook and Saul started killing people and he was like, wow, you tallied 2,373 today. But David, you tallied uh, 14,500. Is that how it probably happened? Whenever it says that, that Saul killed his thousands, it's talking about Saul's, Saul as a commander and the soldiers that are under him, right? So Nico kills Josiah. Um, that's what King said. It said that Nico struck down Josiah. And here we learn that it's Nico's archers. Nico is the commander, king of the army, though. So uh, those under him kind of counts for his kills too, right? So Josiah is someone who listens most of his life to the word of the Lord. He's a righteous and holy person, but at the end of his life, rashly, rebelliously, he goes against God's word. And according to Nico, who strikes Josiah down? God God does. So, again, this idea of immediate retribution. Josiah is righteous. He does what is right. But whenever he rebels against God's word, judgment comes on him. And notice how quick, right? Very quickly. So Josiah is going to be in heaven. Josiah is a saved person. The scriptures present him as a, a man after God's own heart like David in the book of Kings. But here he makes a mistake and discipline comes upon him fast. So again, you all have come back into the land and you've been righteous, you've been doing what's right, but you're starting to be tempted by what you're trying to call small sins. But you should know that if you give yourself to these, God's judgment may fall much more quickly than you expect. So this, I think, explains a lot of the differences between Kings and Chronicles. Um, You all have some additional reading to do uh, in Kings and Chronicles. You guys finished chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Let's skip over, and and tonight we'll do 2 Chronicles um, 8 through 9 in chapter 26. You guys should probably expect another quiz tomorrow um, on reading and on class lectures. Um, so make sure that you're doing this. Remember that you can take notes. Remember that the memory verse is not due tomorrow. It's going to be due on the test. And when is the test? Monday. Monday. Tomorrow we will largely be reviewing content that we've gone over. The quizzes will help us do that. And then um, we'll, we'll spend some time and just kind of talk through things and make sure we're preparing well for the test. So uh, do this reading tonight. And uh, it's nine. So you got about five minutes. And then you guys can head on.